And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf, and joining me in the studio today is the Reverend Mark Diedrich, pastor of the PCA Church in Kingston, New York. Mark, longtime area naturalist and outdoorsman, resides with his wife in Kerhonkson and one of their daughters. They also have a married son who serves with Wycliffe in Brazil, married daughter in Colorado, and a newly married daughter living in the Kerhonkson area. Good day. Good to be here. And Dr. Hans Vogt, Associate Professor of Ulster Kennedy Community College. Hans resides in Saugerties, New York, with his wife and a son and daughter. Pleasure to be here. Well, gentlemen, on this program, within the milieu of history, theology, and current events, we attempt to explore a variety of questions of interest which have been brought to our attention either by our listeners or ones that we have dug up ourselves in preparation for this program. Seeing that October 31st is the last day of this month on a Saturday, the whole group of Saturdays of this month, we're talking about the Reformation. And today's question And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of sub-questions. But it's basically this. uh, What were some of the church practices in the late 1400s and early 1500s, just before the time of Martin Luther? Some people might call it the church mess, or some background as to events that were taking place that were troubling, eventually, to Martin Luther. And I don't know which one of you guys would like to start us off today. One of the areas that you can look at at the time is some of the corruption in the popes. Uh, Alexander VI, who became pope in, what, 1492, I think it was. Um, Rodrigo Borgia. Let's see, how many children did he have, Hans? <laughs> legitimate or illegitimate? <laughs> well, they were all illegitimate. <laughs> oh, boy. But, uh, you know, you don't think about Pope having children, but, uh, yeah, that's, this is uh, what had occurred yeah. at, at that time. And so you, you saw immorality uh, with the Pope. You saw that reach into the society as well. Um, mm-hmm. One of the areas and examples where we see this was when uh, Luther went to Rome. And here he's coming to the holy city, the center of the church. And he's expecting to see this wonderful place what he sees is brothels and he sees all kinds of crime everywhere Mm -hmm. you have uh, a church that is seen as very impersonal Uh, remember that the mass was said in Latin Mm -hmm. uh, a language that few people other than churchmen and college professors spoke Uh, the priest stood with his back to the congregation Uh, he and the nobles were screened off in the choir area of the cathedral churches. The uh, common people did not receive both elements in communion or or Eucharist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And to many ordinary peasants, you know, uh, it must have seemed like a magic ritual. In fact, uh, the magic phrase that we uh, sometimes use jokingly, hocus pocus, comes mm-hmm. from the Latin mass, uh, hocus corpus mei, this is my body, what the priest said when he held up the host. Oh, how about that? Yeah. yeah. Sure. You know, as we talk about this today, uh, one of the things that we want to do mm-hmm. is uh, be very precise as we uh, describe the conditions on the ground leading up to Martin Luther, and also acknowledge that uh, we have many Roman Catholic friends, and uh, this is not intended in any way to... Um, uh, be disrespectful or knock uh, that system. However, uh, we are Reformation Christians here, and so we feel obligated to uh, 
recount some of the uh, history leading up to the Protestant Reformation. Yeah, and, and what we see here is simply the facts of the history. And I'm sure mm-hmm. that, well, in fact, at that time it offended many of those who remained within the Catholic Church. You see an individual like Erasmus who who wrote in Praise of Folly and, and the Julius Exclusus, which was an anonymous book uh, written about the Pope Julius II, who's trying to barge his way into heaven using all the wrong methods, you know. Mm-hmm. And so there are many in the church that are aware of the corruption that had come into the church, the moral corruption especially, over the years. There have been many attempts to, uh, and calls for reform within the church leading up to uh, the Reformation as well. Uh, You have, uh, in the early 1400s, Thomas Akempis writes his classic devotional work, The Imitation of Christ. Uh, You have uh, Jan Hus, uh, the Bohemian uh, reformer who is uh, ultimately uh, will be uh, executed in 1415. So mm-hmm. there are a number of voices within the church calling for reform, pointing out the abuses before Martin Luther uh, and the others come along in the early 1500s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. you see that. You mentioned Hus, the Bohemian reformer. You see it in Italy, Savonarola in uh, Florence. In England, John Wycliffe end of the 14th century, is also standing up and, and saying, things are not right here. Mm-hmm. So multiple men of God are starting to see uh, areas where reform is necessary uh, within the Christian church. And some of this reform, uh, of course, obviously has to uh, take place in the area of morals. Um, mm. And that is one of the areas. But, of course, the other area where it has to take place is in the area of theology. Mm-hmm. And some of the things have taken a, a bad turn in theology as well. Yeah. When I hear some of the uh, stories of morals and the problems way back uh, in the 1400s and 1500s, uh, it uh, really harkens even to today, doesn't it? Uh, we hear stories even today of uh, clergymen that are living in sin, and not being the example that Christ would have them be to their flocks. And uh, that always, I think, sends the common man for a tailspin, or it, or it can at least have that tendency. Non-Christians look on, they expect to see some degree of holiness within God's church. And um, they've heard the Ten Commandments, they may not believe them, may not believe in Christ, certainly they don't if they're an unbeliever. But they uh, certainly want to see some examples of piety, it seems. That's right. We talked about the area of sexual immorality, and and we saw that. You know, I'd mentioned that Luther saw all the brothels in Rome. Yeah. And they were utilized by many of the clergy. Mm -hmm. That was one of the big problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing is simony. The whole area of making money off of these things. Oh, yeah. And this was kind of an institutionalized uh, system at that time. Uh, Hans, you might want to go into it because it it has to bear on Albert of Brandenburg, who was the bishop over the area that Luther was in. But the interesting thing was at that time, you know, we think of bishops today and archbishops and cardinals as churchmen who have studied theology for years and have come up through the ranks. Hmm. That wasn't the case at Luther's time. Mm -hmm. That's right. Very often uh, bishops and archbishops and cardinals were, in fact, younger sons of the nobility. 
So the uh, oldest male child is the heir to the noble title, and then the second son uh, is uh, placed in a diocese, mm -hmm. uh, and often with very little theological training, sometimes as young as 18 or 19 years old. Mm -hmm. Remember as well that um, by the high or late Middle Ages, the church had become a very wealthy and powerful institution uh, and had vast tracts of land and untold riches at its disposal. And that wealth and that power had a corrupting influence. And there were people who wanted positions of power within the church solely so that they could get their hands on that wealth and mm -hmm. on that power. Mm -hmm. Well, I see we're up against a break here. We'll pick up this when we come back. You're tuned today to A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. Stay with us now. We'll be right back. We'll be right back with our program in just a minute. Now a reminder that your gifts to this ministry enable us to bring you thoughtful, Christ-centered programming 24 hours a day. Would you prayerfully consider helping us with a tax-deductible gift this month? Redeemer Broadcasting is a 501c3 not-for-profit broadcast ministry. We're entirely listener-supported and have no advertisements. If you would like to help support us this month, and perhaps in the future, our mailing address is Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Once again, Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Stay with us now for the second half of our program. And welcome back. You're tuned to A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. Today we're talking about events leading up to the Reformation. And gentlemen, let's uh, explore a little bit some of the events concerning uh, penance and how it had evolved over the ages and uh, purgatory and eventually leading to indulgences and all of that. Uh, who can help us on that? Well, if you look at a papal flag even today, you will see on there a set of keys uh, and this is a reference to uh, Jesus' statement in the Gospels to Peter uh, about uh, the giving yes. of the keys, that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Uh, if you forgive men their sins, they will be forgiven. Mm -hmm. uh, and the medieval papacy had come to interpret that in a way that granted authority um, over matters of, of forgiveness and spiritual reconciliation to the church leaders and ultimately to the Pope. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. In addition to that, you also have 
this growth of this penitential system. Now, we spoke about this uh, last week, how the penitential system grew up, especially out of persecutions, and then it ran into this problem. And the problem was, what if somebody hasn't finished his penance and dies? Oh, yeah. Now what do you do? Well, there has been allusions, and of course, they took the, the scriptures in 1 Corinthians three eleven through 15, where it talks about a man's works being proved by fire, whether it's uh, gold, silver, or wood, hay, and stubble. Mm-hmm. And it says, some works are all burned up. Hmm. And and therefore we're saved so as by fire. And there was some illusions, but by the 12th century, finally a doctrine became uh, codified uh, called purgatory. There mm-hmm. is an intermediate place. Now, what is purgatory? Maybe, Hans, you'd like to describe the <laughs> doctrine of purgatory. Sort of the waiting room for heaven. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. I like that. It's a waiting room for heaven. Uh-huh. Nice waiting room. Uh-huh. Not so nice. Not so nice. <laughs> okay. Not at all. Um, basically, the idea is that you are, um, you still have to finish paying the penalty or, or the punishment, uh, absorbing the punishment for uh, those sins you committed on earth. And purgatory is the place where you do that. Mm-hmm. And not until you have been completely purged, which is the, the root word there, uh, mm-hmm. of that will you be able to go on to paradise. And enter into the presence of God. Now, on the other end, there's also the idea of the treasury of merit. Uh, The belief that certain Christians, uh, the saints uh, in the sense of the word of, you know, sort of the Christian Hall of Fame, the great giants of church history, had not only not had to go through this, but that they had accumulated sort of a surplus of good works of, of merit which then believers might be able to tap into. Yeah, one of the Uh things maybe we need to do is understand what merit is. And the uh, Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church had a wonderful definition, and of course I left it home. But but essentially, merit is uh, the doing of works that obligates God. Now, understand that, so that God is, is, in a sense obligated to the individual. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, uh, when it comes to Luther and the Reformers, they're going to throw that concept out completely. Mm -hmm. Now, what is the concern that the church of the day had such that purgatory would have been taught? It seems to me that perhaps the thought in their minds was this, um, they knew that the Bible taught that without holiness no man would see the Lord. Uh, God's infinitely holy, and we can't have any sin in us as we stand before his presence. Therefore, if, if indeed we do inherit eternal life and go to heaven, there's got to be a, some kind of a process whereby we can become sinless and, and so enter our heavenly bliss. You know, purgatory is a tough thing. <laughs> It, it really is tough when you look at it, and, and it's tough enough that I think the Catholic Church has fought over in the, in mm-hmm. the definitions mm-hmm. of it. First off, purgatory is not trying to say that uh, these works or the suffering in purgatory, which, by the way, they mentioned that the suffering in purgatory, the least suffering in purgatory, is far worse than any suffering on earth. Hmm. So understand that. A number of them mentioned that. Mm-hmm. But 
the suffering is not, I mean, these people, they're pointing out that these people are justified. It is a, a waiting room. Mm-hmm. And, and the justification, and some of this justification is done by God's grace and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. However, there is this whole idea still that there is still a temporal penalty that has to be paid. Mm-hmm. And it's that temporal penalty that has to be paid. In addition to that, there's also the concept that there are venial sins. Now we have mortal and venial sins. This gets into a whole other Pandora's box of what do you have, how do you define those. But the venial sins can be paid for in purgatory. These lesser sins can actually be paid for. Now, there's been some debate whether that's still held or, or not, but... Uh, you have those concepts at least floating around at this time uh, with the whole idea of purgatory. Now, here's the thing. They're talking in terms of years of suffering. Hmm. And how do you help people who are in that predicament? You buy indulgences. You buy indulgences. So that's where it comes from. Yeah, and you have, here again, Hans is talking about merit, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And, And he's talking about the keys. And so now the Pope can offer what is called a plenary indulgence. Hmm. He can declare, because he has the keys now, an indulgence. And why might he want to do that? Well, technically, indulgences were not sold. They were in response to a free will offering. Hmm. Um, And it should also be pointed out that Theologically uh, speaking, it only remitted the penalty of sin. Remember, that's what you're in purgatory for. Right. Uh, it did not forgive sin. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it like was a major fundraiser for the church. Uh, there's no question about it. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, Pope Leo X uh, issued a special indulgence to finance the construction of a brand new church, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And, of and course, it, it wasn't in Germany. No. <laughs> no. So so the Germans probably were not too excited about this. That's ah, right. Yeah. No, they they may not have been, but then uh-huh. you then you have uh the, the bishop, Bishop of Mainz or, or Brandenburg, and here he in order to get another bishopric and another office, which he needs, he needs to pay somebody. Mm-hmm. He needs to pay the Pope. And, and he, how does he do that? Well first he takes out a loan from the Fugger <laughs> banking family. Uh, and then, in order to pay back that loan, uh, he was selling indulgences uh, or offering indulgences in exchange for a free will offering with half the proceeds going to pay back that loan. Right. Well, I can see that this uh, discussion is huge and it's definitely going to extend into next week, gentlemen. Um, Wrap-up thoughts uh, as we close here today. Suppose somebody's listening to this and we've confused them. (laughs) And they simply say, what is the path of salvation and how are my sins forgiven such that I can stand before God someday and know that all of my sins are paid for? The idea of imputation comes to mind. Mark, can you explain that quickly in closing? Yeah, the imputation is... The imputation of righteousness. If we don't have righteousness, we can't stand before God. Mm. But we don't have righteousness. 
but who does have righteousness, who does have this merit. We talked about merit. It was Jesus Christ. Mm. Jesus Christ, true God, true man, came, died on the cross, rose three days later, that anyone who believes in him receives his righteousness. And that's all the righteousness we need. And so that's what imputation means. It's yes, a big it's word simply righteousness. describing that. Jesus' righteousness given to us. It's given to us. It's placed on our account. Right. And so um, because of Jesus, we can stand before God right. with confidence, not, not our own, not our right. own works of righteousness, right. or else we could boast about that. Right. Because of his righteousness, righteousness. we are two. forgiven. Yeah, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Amen. We're out of time already. Join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer as we continue this very interesting discussion on the Reformation. Hopefully next week we'll get into Luther a little more. Thanks for joining us today. In the studio with me has been the Reverend Mark Diedrich of the PCA Church in Kingston, New York, and Dr. Hans Vogt, Associate Professor, Ulster County Community College. Thanks for joining us. May the Lord richly bless you today as you serve him.